Welcome to the W2 Prison Break Show, a podcast and YouTube series hosted by real estate investor, author, and coach Brian O'Neill. Tune in each week as we interview business owners who have successfully planned and executed their W2 Prison Break. You'll hear their stories, learn about their challenges, and what ultimately pushed them over the edge and gave them the courage to break free. Most importantly, you'll discover they are not much different than you. Listen in each week as we give you useful insights and action items to start your W-2 prison break and get you on the path you are always meant to be on. Hey everyone, welcome back. We have a really exciting guest for you today. His name's Lane Keowaka and he's in Hawaii, uh, which isn't a terrible place to live at all. Lane is currently, he's a real estate, he's a big real estate company and he's currently managing and controlling over $1.2 billion of real estate assets under management, over 8,000 units in commercial real estate, and has raised over $160 million. But prior to that, you're going to hear this awesome W-2 prison break story. Uh, he's an engineer. He started out as an engineer and, and, and worked up uh, worked in corporate for quite some time, building his real estate business on the side and used that as a way to, to break free. It's going to be a tremendous show. I just want to remind everyone that all of our shows are on YouTube, and then you can also listen on your favorite uh, audio players. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great one. Lane, welcome to the show, my friend. Good to see you and look forward to the discussion today. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Yeah, and before we get into your W-2 prison break story, which is an awesome one right now, you're doing some great things. We're going to definitely dive into that. Just you know, to expand on the intro that I gave your bio, kind of give us some background on you. Take us back to the early days when you you know, when you got out of college and started working and ultimately what led you to where you are right now? Yeah, I mean, I kind of grew up in the household where, you know, you're taught to go to school, study hard, be a good kid and invest in your 401k and, you know, max that out and, you know, just work at and grind at a job and work your way up the ladder for several decades, right? <laughs> but, you know, I was kind of always, you know, we were always taught to save, you know, like we, when we went to restaurants, we never bought soft drinks. You know, those are always costly. And, you know, we're pretty frugal with our money. And I was able to save, you know, 80 grand in like a couple of years working and to buy up a house to live up in Seattle. And that was kind of that program. I call it the linear path, right? Because you just follow it like you're brain dead. You're just good boys and girls just following that path. And, that was kind of me, like right out of college. I was a construction supervisor out there and 100% travel. And you know, I knew you had to pay your dues, right? But I mean, very early, I was like, this sucks. Like, this engineering <laughs> job sucks. Like, yeah. Another fun thing, like, you know, people like say, oh, it's good to be outside, outdoors, and, you know, not stuck in office. I'm kind of the opposite. I want you to like, go to the office every day to be the same thing go to the gym at the same time. That was kind of more like me, but that's how, kind of how I was in my early 20s. Right. And you were in engineering, it sounds like? That's correct. I got a bachelor's in industrial engineering because I wasn't smart enough to get it in computer science, electrical, chemical, 
and not smart enough to get it in like mechanical or civil for undergraduate. So I went to project management, right? <laughs> right. There you go. And you mentioned about you were being taught to save. I mean, hey, look, my parents did the same thing too. We were frugal. It's like, you know, invest in, I drank the Kool-Aid too, invest in your 401k and save and get a good job. And, you know, hopefully you retire when you're 65 and you'll have enough money to live for the next 20 or some odd years. What did you do with that? You saved up the 80 grand. So obviously there were some benefits there. You know, you, you learned those lessons. You said you bought a house with the 80,000. Did you buy a rental property or did you buy your main residence? Yeah, I bought the main residence first because that's what everybody says to do, right? Get on yeah, the yeah. so-called escalator of wealth building. And oh, so, you know, you're paying rent and throwing money down the tube, which in my opinion is totally false. I don't know where people get that from, but I blindly followed the dogma and bought a house to live in. And, you know, here this 20 something year old kid is living there all of himself and he's traveling 100% for work. So, what does a cheapo do? But I started to rent it out and I just lived off the company dime, living in hotels for several years up straight. And, you know, I tell people it's not what you make, what your top line income is, it's more what you save. And now it's making close to six figures, but like nothing like how kids are making these days, or I know a lot of your guys are making like two, 300 plus thousand. A lot of my clients make over 500, 600,000 as doctors. It's all what you net. And at that time, you know, making like a hundred grand, I was able to save sometimes like 80, $90,000 a year, just paying taxes basically. <laughs> so all that money went to buying more and more rentals after that first one. You know, I got that taste of cash. So I was like, wow, the tenants paying down my mortgage. I'm getting the equity appreciation there. I'm getting cash flow, which I can feel like I can finally spend it because it kind of feels like free money. And then I'm getting the tax benefits and then the appreciation too, which I don't really count on because I don't believe in gambling on appreciation and be going cash flow. But when you add those four up, you know, you're making like 20, 30% plus and your returns on your money. And I was like, why the heck am I doing this eight to 10% 401k nonsense? Yeah, great insight. So it sounds like you had a pretty significant mindset shift early in your W2 career. And that really helped you, you know, understand that I can leverage my W2 job, you know, you're out traveling, you're not really there. So you just said, Hey, let's rent this thing. And you got a taste of the passive income. And then you started acquiring some more properties. And we talk about that a little bit. Right, right. And before I go any further, I know people have heard this before, right? But we're not talking about wholesaling and flipping houses. To me, that's what you do when you're broke. For many of us with paying jobs and, you know, we're busy managing our, like our day job, right? So we don't get fired <laughs> doing this stuff <laughs> on the side. You know, it needs to be passive. So I was buying these, what they were called turnkey rentals. So you know, sometimes like, you know, folks out, you know, out there, like the flyover states where the numbers work way better. One of the things we look for, even today, when I buy large apartments is like this 1% rent to value ratio. So you take the monthly rents divided by the purchase price and it needs to be 1% or higher for the numbers to work for the cash flow. Why is cash flow important? Well, obviously you get paid every month, but in case of a recession, you're not you know, out on the cold, right? You can pay your debt service. We don't really look at like loan to value. We look at debt service coverage ratio for some more sophisticated investors out there. Mm -hmm. Debt service coverage ratio 1.25 or greater. But 
you know, like going into these types of deals, you know, it's typically not going to be where you live. Most of my clients live in Washington, California, New York. It ain't going to be there. Those are called primary markets. So I was buying in a lot of these secondary and tertiary markets like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Memphis, Little Rock, places like that. Not the funnest places to go and visit, but they have these great rent-to-value ratios that allow you to cash flow. They don't appreciate it as much, but you know, I don't really care about that. I don't care more about cash flow. So I right. started to buy all these turnkey rentals and just all my money plowed to just down payments on these things over the next several years. Okay, this is great. This is great stuff. So you're not living where you're investing, which I think is a misnomer for a lot of folks who are, you know, working at a job that they want to get out of and maybe create some cash flow. So you did this all virtually, essentially, and maybe touch a little bit more on what you mean by turnkey rental and how active were you in managing these properties that you ended up purchasing in other states? Yeah. I mean, this is actually like a product that people will sell, turnkey yep. rentals. If you Google it, you know, things will pop up, guys, providers will pop up and supposedly like, I mean, there's different layers of turnkey, I guess. Right. But essentially the idea is like, you know, a house flipper out there will go buy a beat up piece of junk and they'll fix it up but they'll put like a renter type of standard type of stuff. It won't be like super pretty, but it'll be like really durable and good enough, right? For government work or for, you know, class B and C renters for the most part. So they'll fix the roof, the flooring, the appliances, the new paint job, they'll fit all the interior stuff. And mm -hmm. sometimes these guys will even put a tenant in there for you and manage it for you. I always recommend my folks to get a third-party property manager to get this all in place. So you don't, you buy from somebody else, but it's a great way for like new investors to put on the training wheels as a landlord. But this is what I did. 2009 was when I bought my first rental. Mm -hmm. So 2015 is when I stopped buying these little rental properties. I got up to 11 of them. And I think they're a critical part of wealth building, but if you're already an accredited investor or million dollar net worth or greater, or making more than like 250 a year, it's little rental properties are kind of a pain in the ass and they're still have some little bit of li legal liability and the debts in your personal name syndications and private placements might be more of your style. That's where I kind of switched. So from 2015, you know, with 11 rentals, you know, each rental gives me like a couple hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks of cash flow every month. So you add that up. I, I was positive cash flow, 3000 bucks, which was, you know, a lot of that's when it's real estate, it's tax-free. So it was essentially like half my paycheck. I saw the light to financial freedom. And yeah. I actually saw this very early on. And my attitude towards work changed pretty drastically in the first, even the first several years doing this, where I was kind of like, well, I don't really need to do this too yeah. much longer, right? Yeah. So you were planning um, the exit. You saw it, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my first job was pretty hard. I worked for a very conservative company where, you know, quality of life is low, but the pay is a little higher. And maybe that was a, probably a good thing too, yeah. because it kind of heated up the boiling water and made me really hate my job and want to get out even more and more motivation to saving to put the down payments and more properties. But I would say like my attitude definitely changed after a while. Like I kind of became apathetic in a way where it's like, well, I don't have to keep doing this. Like I make more than you guys. I mean, it was start to realize that 95% of people out there, they just are really bad with their money. 
they can't save it. They spend more than they make. And, you know, let's put aside the folks who, who don't go to college. I mean, I think college is really that great anyway, but like, don't go to college, don't get a professional career. A lot of those people, it's an income issue, right? They just don't make enough money. If you don't make 50, 80 grand in this country with a family, you're not making enough money, quite frankly. Yeah. That's a different problem. I don't know how to fix that. There's so many websites, debt consolidation. I don't know about that, but I was good with my money. So a lot of folks that I think are listening resonate with this, right? You make six figures, but there's this kind of money mindset out there, like Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, the saver mentality. And what I tell people a lot is that's good for people who, number one, don't make that much money. Or number two, maybe you do make a good salary, but you suck at your personal finance. You can't really keep a budget. And I would still argue that most people are like this. The people who cross over, like, like people like myself, right? We save a boatload of our into 401k, even though we shouldn't be doing that. We're on this fast pass to financial independence. We need to get rid of the Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, save, 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 save. And you got to get into things, buy assets with good debt and leverage your debt. And in a way, be on the offense. And people don't realize that there's these two paradigms. And the two, like, I mean, some people call it the rich dad, poor dad kind of mentality or operating system. I call it the simple passive cash flow.com mentality, right? It actually tell you guys what to do. Buying little rental properties to your network is half a million, million, then go into syndications and private placements after that. But, you know, that's kind of what I followed, right? I followed this journey. Once I got to the accredited status, I started to go into syndications and private placements. And I started to dump the little annoying rental properties. But the annoying rental properties to me was a way how I learned. And it helped me really do due diligence on the larger deals as a passive investor. And yeah. Yeah. Great share. Can you talk about and I love the simple passive cashflow.com. That's where you teach people how to do this and basically follow this path that you've developed, which we're going to get to. There's still a lot more here. Maybe talk about one of your first syndication deals because you did make the leap from single family to syndications to multis. Yeah. I mean, I already had that mindset of like, mm, these rental properties are kind of a pain in the butt, right? It's not scalable. Yeah. You know, for, like I said, I had 11 rentals and maybe a few thousand dollars in passive cash flow every month. And it was a bit of a headache because with 11 rentals, just to give some people some insights, I had maybe an eviction or two every year, which are a little annoying. Of course, I have a property manager on all these properties. I'm not some idiot who runs this stuff myself remotely. There's somebody else that takes 10% of the rents that does all my dirty work for me. But yeah, I mean, to deal with these evictions and these, you know, every quarter, you're going to have some big kind of catastrophe if you have a lot of rentals. It's kind of like if you have like, you know, 10 sons, you know, one of them is going to go to jail every decade, you know, like that's just kind of the odds. I've never heard that before, but yeah, I guess that makes sense. I don't have sons, but I just see it on TV and, you know, I just see it out yeah. there, you know, see if Felice car, you know, some kid's going to go to jail, right? It's typically a dude. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, you see where this is going, right? And totally. I'm like, then I started to join. This is kind of where the big thing, aha moment for me was I started to interact with other high net worth accredited investors. And these aren't, you know, super rich people, but they have a million dollar net worth or greater. And a lot of them were you know, of my pedigree, like, you know, I was an engineer, there are a lot of engineers, there's a heck of a lot of engineers as investors, doctors, lawyers, dentists, accountants, pharmacists, a lot of professionals, 
also working their day jobs because it's a great way to you know build up that cash to buy more rentals or go into more deals. But their main thing was that they were, you know, dumping their rentals and going into these larger syndications. And I just saw the writing on the wall. And when you meet people who do what you do and they say, well, I used to do what you do, but now I do this. That's probably one of the best arguments for me that I at least start to look into these large syndicated projects. But when I first started, saw this stuff, I thought they were like Ponzi schemes. And, but then I started to get to know the people, build relationships. And that's what this world is. It's a people game, building relationships, the right operators and building colleagues and peers of other passive investors to know who's legit in this business. The trouble is that, you know, everybody's got podcasts these days. Everybody's got books. So it's really hard to determine who's legit in this fake it to your make it type of world that the general partners live in, which is why I tell everybody and how, like my whole method is like building relationships, with other passive investors why we kind of have a community for this and you kind of just basically copy what other passive investors do, right? That have gotten good returns from yep. people and haven't gotten their money stolen. And this is the essence, like this is the country club deals. This is the virtual country club in a way. And this is the way that a lot of investors invest. And I mean, we can kind of get into it later, but like it really opens up the taxes because now when you're going into these deals, a lot of these deals do cost segregations which if some people are, are rental property owners, you know, you can deduct 127th of the value of the home every year and take that as a paper loss. But with this stuff, you could deduct one third of the property all in the first year. Yeah. Like it can be like a 10 or 20 X that deduction. And now you can implement certain strategies. Like, you know, the typical one for my clients are like, you, know, you have a couple, one higher paid person, and maybe another lower paid one that we want to have them to stay at home and play with the kids and enjoy life. And now that person can implement real estate professional status, rep status, which is just a checkbook on checkbox on your taxes. There's a few loopholes to jump through, but once you do that, now you can use the passive losses to not only offset all the passive income, that's a gimme, but use it to offset the ordinary income which I know a lot of you guys have high W2 or 1099 salaries. And you can basically, you can pay whatever taxes you want at that point. Correct. And as you alluded to earlier, it's not what you earn, it's what you get to keep. Right, this a, right. This is a tremendous way to reduce your tax liability. I mean, and even to zero in some cases, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't pay taxes legally. I mean, I have million plus bucks of passive activity losses, I mean, to use at my disposal. There's a strategy to it, right? And unfortunately, a lot of CPAs, tax folks don't really understand this stuff, right? Like, that's why like a lot of this stuff is like, if there's one big piece of financial advice, never take financial advice from people who are not financially free themselves. Like, why would you want to take financial advice from a CPA? The dude has a job, a job. He works for a paycheck. He hasn't figured this stuff out. Yeah. Show me um, your income statement. <laughs> well, show me your net worth. Yeah. Right? Right. Income, it's all what you keep and what you accumulate at the end of the day. There's a lot of people with high incomes that aren't the most sophisticated investors or money managers. It's all net worth to me is what your age is. Great stuff. I mean, it's you're now in these multi-unit deals and you're buying a lot of commercial assets, if you will, and you're up to several thousand units now. But when did you start to 
really think about, okay, I'm exiting my W-2. <laughs> yeah, I kind of did this. So like you know, switching back to the W-2 world, like, you know, I did change jobs a few times, actually. Like, I mean, I started to work for the government and, mm -hmm. you know, actually the job became pretty, I actually enjoyed it at that because I enjoyed the full workers. I liked the management. I didn't like what I did one bit, but like, I mean, to me, there's like a triangle of like, you know, who do you work for? Or who do you work with or your subordinates? And then like, do you like the work that you're in? I think if you have like two out of three of those, you can be pretty damn happy. You can't have one or none. I guess what you're trying to find is something that's all three, which I mean, good luck. <laughs> but like some of my doctor clients have it, right? Because, you know, they happen to be, have a good boss. That's the hardest one, but, you know, they work with people and they, often work with people on their worst day and that can be very enriching. And then they obviously, you know, they may like their coworkers to have a great team environment. And that's the perfect environment where you can make a boatload of money doing that. Well, most of them work two to three days a week, right? what they typically do once they find this stuff. But, you know, for me, it was like just kind of downgrading to like more quality of life, less work responsibilities, you know, like, but after a while, you know, I went into some bad deals with people as a passive investor. And then I, then I realized that I needed to control the capital stack myself. And, you know, that's why I started to do deals myself. And then my investors would come in and that was, I kind of felt a little irresponsible, like bringing in my constituents that here I am working this W2 full-time job on the side, right? A little irresponsible. So I eventually cut the cord on that. But if I wasn't like a general partner deal operator, I mean, that would have been a great, like, I could have probably, probably still doing it today, right? Like I enjoyed the work somewhat. It was cruise. I got to do my investing, passive investing thing on the side, which isn't that hard. Yeah. And to be a passive investor, maybe takes five hours a month to do. Yeah. That's really and, all it takes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of what I could have just stayed in that job and just kicked back and cruise. But, you know, I think I quit around like 2018, I think. Um, 18. Mm -hmm. and, All right. So you know, you've been there for about a little over 10 years in W2. Yeah. 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 But the W2 really helped me, you know, propel our company and, you know, build our organization that, you know, and I think for my kids, right, I, I'm not a huge fan of college and you know, higher education, but I do think that it gets you in a position to compete and get into like a fortune 500 company. Hmm. Not a huge fan of fortune 500 companies because of bureaucracy and everything, but it helps put you into a system and you can kind of be on the inside and kind of be a spy and you can learn how their systems are. And a lot of those systems I implement today, minus all the BS essentially. Yeah. So, I mean, it goes without saying, congrats on the exit there, but talk about your company now. You've got this big real estate company. You've got over a billion assets under management, over 8,000 units. You know, talk about your business and maybe a little bit about what like a typical day looks like for you. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, today, like it's changed a lot. I mean, in the beginning, we were kind of running around doing everything, managing the manager, working with investors. When we went over, I would say $500 million of assets under management, it became unscalable to do it like that for ourselves. So, and that was kind of a period where we had to kind of reinvest a lot of our initial profits into mm -hmm. other staff with who did our job a lot better than us. So like 
you know, some of the key hires other than, you know, investor relations staff and, you know, marketing staff, but the key hires are like, you know, hiring other property managers, but the property managers who did were in the industry for a decade plus, and they have this insights. You know, it's kind of like, you know, just like if you came and played doctor or computer scientist or computer engineer for a day, you just can't do it, right? Like even if you you studied up for six months to a couple of years, you just can't do it. And here I am, you know, I guess I'm a semi-smart dude, right? Like, but like, I don't know, like the little nuances that somebody who was, you know, worked at a $30,000, $40,000 leasing agent job and stepped up to a property manager that yeah. maybe started their own property management company. Like, those are some of the valuable insights that kind of we have as our operations staff now that we've engulfed. Our role has kind of changed from, you know, doing everything to just creating the org structure. That was kind of not one of my fortes. So we kind of have some C-level staff that help us do that too. But these days, it's more like guiding the direction and business development, because that was essentially what got us started was the key relationships and continuing to build key relationships in the future, like with banks and with pref equity partners and stuff like that. I think still like I have like a life coach and he kind of tells me, well, you need to figure out what you really enjoy out of all these random things you're doing. And for me, it's like, you know, interacting with investors, give them that all home, right? Mm -hmm. And you've been doing it all wrong of 401ks, there's a bunch of retail investments that just, you know, go out to the clueless and you need to get into like deals where you know people and where it's does well in recessions. And then you like, you implement that, then you get the cost segregations and the depreciation and losses to do different games on your taxes. And then you do a little bit infinite banking, which is like cash value, life insurance at a 90-10 split with only 10% being insurance. And like those are one, two, three combos. Like it's a powerful thing that is very counterintuitive to how normal people do finances or people still in that Dave Ramsey school of thought. It's a game changer and it, it allows, you know, people who've been working so hard, you know, I'd say our average client, $1.5 million net worth in their early forties with two kids, you know, you change one thing around now, one spouse doesn't have to work and now they're, they see the light instead of another 20, 30 years of working. It's really five years ahead of them. It's totally transformational within, you know, these individual families and you know, putting on the events and then meeting other people who have taken the red pill of finance. That's what I enjoy. Awesome. So you're putting on some events too. Talk a little bit more about that. It sounds like you have events for your clients. Yeah, we're a kooky bunch, right? Like our deep down core is like we're savers. We delay gratify and we get off on that. People come to Hawaii, we do it in Hawaii. Like people come to Hawaii, they, nobody stays at the high end stuff, right? That's not... Yeah good use of that's not good value right they stay in like kind of the more boutique three-star four-star hotels but you know a lot of these guys are very affluent right especially once they start to invest and it's lonely right like all our friends and family are investing in like the 401k or some of the you know the more aggressive ones are doing crypto and bitcoin or mm -hmm. worse altcoins and it's just here we are investing in very stable boring assets. Like I almost call it like investing in blue overalls and jeans and hard work. We buy 
1960s and 1990 properties that caters towards the lower middle class, kind of a grungier demographic. It's not sexy. We slowly, and it takes a while, right? This is not a get rich quick scheme. We go in and we rehab units slowly as tenants move out. It takes forever, it takes, you know, several years. But in recessions, it performs pretty well. And in good times, it outperforms all of the good stuff. And it's like this idea of doing this with so many people is crazy too. That like when people, you know, assemble, I'm going out to like LA next week and Arizona and just to do a little pop up meeting. But when people assemble and they, they're like, yeah, you know, I don't do the 401k because, you know, like all the reasons Lane said, like it totally makes sense. But like none of my coworkers, I can't, you know, they start to become very distanced from most of their coworkers. Because none of that stuff, when they actually use their head and get away from like the financial dogma put on by all the vanguards, fidelities, all these institutions that want you to put your money in that stuff, yeah, they're like, it makes no sense. But I still, people are still like, they're stuck in that spell. But when I come here, I can have great conversations and you know, we, we disclose what our net worth is, what we're investing in, and these, we can talk about these alternative investing ideas, talk about deals. You know, it's just, it's kind of like a cult, if you ask, right? Like, <laughs> well, you're around like-minded people and it's always good to be in a different room, especially when you don't like the one that you're in. Yeah, I love what you say about 401ks and I saw the light on that too. I always knew it, but I just kept feeding it in because it became like automatic. But I'd caution anyone to be very, very leery of putting your money into a program, whatever, for lack of a better phrase, where they control how much you can put in, they control what you can invest in, and then they tell you when you can take it out, They and then they tell you when you have to take it out. So it's just very limiting, and it's all completely one-sided. And I saw the light on that. I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts on the topic, but I got completely out of that. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, I can go over it pretty concisely in a in a couple of minutes. I have like four big issues with the 401k. Yeah, please share um, type of stuff. Like a lot of it has to do with taxes, right? Mm. I mean, when I put my money, you know, a lot of the whole dogmas is predicated on like you'll get older and you'll shrivel up and die and make less money in the future, and at that point you'll be in a lower tax bracket. But not me, not most of my investors, they're going to be baller in the future and be in a, in a much higher tax bracket than they are today. Yep. Therefore, you should pay your taxes on the damn thing today. Take it out today while you're in a lower tax bracket. Number two, I mean, look where this country is going. How are you going to pay for all these government entitlement programs with raised taxes in the future? You know, so again, pay your taxes now, get it out now. The, the next biggest thing is like, I think the argument for these 401ks is that, oh, it grows tax-free. Well, when you invest in real estate that has a bunch of paper losses, like depreciation, you can write all a bunch of other stuff off. It often is tax-free anyway. So that point is negated. But here's the big kicker. That I think, you know, we kind of briefly touched upon this, like how most people are playing checkers, putting money in their 401k or Roth IRAs or whatever. And we play chess, right? We're manipulating our adjusted gross income on our personal tax return based on what our investments are. And when you play this chess game instead of checkers, I want the depreciation and losses that come from my investments. Where when you're investing, you can invest through a self-directed IRA too. 
But when you're investing through one of these type of programs or a solo 401k, it's you don't get the passive losses to flow on your personal tax side. It stays locked up in there. And yeah. that's the downside to this. So you know, it's more about using the losses on the deals and the investment properties from depreciation, which is just paper loss to clean up your, you know, pay less taxes today. And you lose that ability when you invest in this insulated 401k or solo 401k. I mean, the only good thing it's for is you're investing in non-tax advantage type of stuff. Oh, well, it's non-tax advantage stuff, like, like your crypto, things like that. Or if you're a private money lender in uh, real estate, like I wouldn't do that anyway. Like, you know, that where you just lend money to a house flipper and there's no losses, you're getting paid with a 1099. There's no tax advantage with that. But, you know, that's the stuff you're supposed to do it in those type of stuff. But I don't do anything that's not tax advantage, hmm. really. So love it. great share, great insight. And, you know, something more we can learn at simplepassivecashflow.com. I'm definitely assuming that. And then you have a podcast as well. Talk a little bit about your show. Yeah, I mean, it's basically kind of a follow my journey. I mean, I started back in 2016 when I was buying little rental properties. And I would just teach people how to buy, you know, turnkey rentals. And, you know, back then we had like a little incubator group. And now a lot of the information is for free. If you're just in the game of buying a little turnkey rental, I mean, you can go to simplepassacashflow.com slash turnkey and get the free guide there. But as I became over an accredited investor, and like I said, at that time, I was going into a lot of larger syndication deals. I saw the light. And for accredited investors, it's a no-brainer to go into these syndicated deals if you can build relationships and build a community around yourself or join a community out there. And that was kind of where it transitioned. And I mean, that's my whole thing is like, I know that there's something else out there. And that's kind of my job is to kind of cut the corners for a lot of folks, right? Like if your net worth is a million bucks, you shouldn't dick around with little rental properties. Just go to the big stuff, the syndicated deals. But for a lot of my investors that are, are like one to $10 million net worth, well, what's after, right? What do you do after when you've got, you know, five, $10 million plus, and you can comfortably live off your four or 5% off of that. What are like the 50 million, $100 million families, the family offices doing, right? Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that I try and learn these days. And I try and bring it down to my folks and, you know, just that insight, right? Cause you want to just always be improving as a investor and become a professional investor. The trouble is, right, you know, most people are working their day jobs, right? So they don't really have the time. And the issue is interacting with the right higher level people, higher level investors, getting access to those rooms, which a lot of people don't have the time for, nor the network. But that's kind of been my passion to kind of uncovering this myself. But even, you know, to implement the strategies for like one to $10 million net worth people, I mean, you look at it and it's not that hard. Like I said, you know, invest in good deals, use the passive losses on your taxes, tell your CPA what to do or find a new one, yeah. in infinite banking. And it's pretty simple, but it's very counterintuitive to what like they normally tell us right to do. Extremely great chair, great journey. Love your story. Just before we wrap up, I got a couple of questions for you. I wanted to ask one, do you, whether it's a morning routine or some habits that you've adopted that you could share with the listeners that have really led to success or keep you, you know, on the path, if you will. Yeah. I think one thing I do well is I execute, you know, I'm the person who will write down my list of things to do, but I actually do it. And I think that allows you to kind of constantly 
innovate and constantly improve. I don't know what that, you know, if you improve 1% every day, I mean, at the end of the year, you'll be like 20 something times better than what you were. I'm not a huge fan of like morning routines. I don't wake up and do yoga. You know, I jump on the emails and put out the fires just like anybody else. I don't wake up super early. You know, today was a little early for me. I try to wake up around eight nice. <laughs> if I can. And I think like my whole advice from that is like, you know, hey, do what, what works for you guys, right? Like not everybody is the same, but make sure it works for you. And And I would say like, I'm really good at focusing on what, businesses and for a lot of folks listening it's like your own personal finances Mm. what are you going to do with the investments and taxes not what you're doing with your employer you know you're building somebody else's dream with that build yours first even if it you're like me and you know you're working a day job you're kind of sleepwalking through it for a decade you know that's to me that's the most important thing is get your own stuff right and doesn't take that much time to learn to do what's right and to implement it, especially once you know what you should be doing. You can sleep, sleepwalk through a job. They pay for your time and your head, but they don't charge you for your heart. You always have those few extra hours a day to kind of put to where you are doing. After you play with the kids and you do your family obligations and yeah. you're tired, of course, but you know, too many people, they spend so much time like over the news or like focusing on like things that don't matter. Like, what's the scene? Most people major in the minor things. Tony Robbins yeah. quote. Yeah, um, yeah. Great and, stuff. Get your own stuff right. Awesome share. Do you have a coach or a mentor? Do you believe in that? Not really. I mean, you know, I think when you're starting out, I think a coach would be good. I mean, that's kind of the role I play for some folks, my inner circle and mastermind group. and But you know, you got to pay them, right? Like, I mean, if anybody's worth it, you got to pay them. And the trouble is there's a lot of fake gurus out there that don't really do nothing. They just write books and stuff like that and have YouTube channels. That's why a lot of stuff on my website are free. Like I hate that fake guru stuff, right? The guys that teach people and they mostly prey on, not your audience. They mostly prey on the guys who don't have money and are really desperate and they sell them on hope and fear. But like- yeah. Yeah, I would say like, if you need to find a model that's doing this, but like, I mean, if you're starting out, I mean, there's a lot of like YouTube and podcasts to kind of just start to absorb it. And I would say focus on getting a community than worshiping the gods and the gurus, right? Find other peers on this journey. And that's going to be the way to get you off the ground. Of course, like, I'm super cheap and that's how I used to do it initially. But then I saw the light in 2015 when I really started to pay, you know, like five figure plus a year on these mastermind groups and education. And that got me connected with the right community. Then there's the freebie, freeloader, tire kicker kind of crowd of peer group. Yeah. So that was a big thing in hindsight. But, you know, if somebody's starting out, you know, so much free stuff out there, you should be able to dissect, but just know you're kind of trading time for money in a way. But I'm always for like, you know, just get rolling down the road before you interject any type of like money into it. Like once you've got some, you might have a rental property or in several deals, then I would say it makes sense to pony up once you got proof of concept and this whole thing works and then accelerate it with a better community and network after that, that are actually serious like you. Yeah. Thanks, Lane. We're going to give the website again simplepassivecashflow.com. 
simplepassivecashflow.com. It's been tremendous having you. I just, I love the inside. I love the way you think. I mean, you obviously think a lot differently now than you did when you first started out. So you can see the growth there. Really appreciate the share. Anything else you want to share with the listeners before we sign off or that I forgot to ask you? No, I mean, I think some people are saying they eventually you're going to quit the day job. I mean, I think that's probably the mindset of a lot of folks, but you know, speaking from myself and a lot of my folks who are like two to $5 million net worth who broke through that part of the stratosphere, mm. you got to do something with your time and, you know, you got to try and figure out what makes you happy. But I do think you have to go through a period, like a little air pocket where you don't do jack for like maybe six months to several years where you just go weightless and you know, this concept of financial freedom to me is kind of like you need to save enough money to buy enough assets to create enough passive income where it exceeds your expenses. So 10, 20 grand per month. And then you quit your job and then you go weightless and you're going to go through this vacuum and air bubble where you're kind of just floating. But until you're floating and, you know, searching for your next main life mission, it's hard to do that, to search when you're stuck trading time for money. So I think that's what I'm kind of uncovering with myself and some of my clients is you have to go to that stage of you got to get your own oxygen mask on first. You got to get FI and then the next chapter of your life will come. But it's a lonely world, right? Not many people get to ponder these type of first world or first world problems, but like upper 1% first world problems, right? Where you've tr- you're searching for autonomy and trying to find some kind of meaning of what the heck you're here when your money continues to compound on itself where it compounds at a rate where it's quicker than you could spend at a reasonable rate, of course. But like, mm-hmm. you know, not many people are faced with that. Most people are kind of stuck in a day job just going and trading time for money. Yeah. Don't have to do that. Great final thought. Appreciate the share. And you spending some time with us today. I know it's valuable. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. As always, make it a great day. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the W2 Prison Break Show. Don't forget, you can watch all full video episodes on our YouTube channel. Definitely check that out and please subscribe. Go to w2prisonbreak.com to learn more. If you like this show, please leave us a rating and review so we can continue to support you and the thousands of others planning their W-2 prison break. Here's to you busting out.